Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR-FM 88.5 in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Wen Chan. My name is Autumn Mornchek. My name is Andy Silva. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with the issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. Today is February 14th, a day of the Women's Memorial March, where people across Canada are gathering to grieve and remember missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. For this week's episode, we wanted to highlight the voices of the amazing Indigenous women in our community and all over the world. We're featuring an interview that I did with Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard, who is a director at the First People's House of Learning at Trent University. And afterwards, we'll hear from Randy Monkman with her experiences here at Edmonton with supporting the blockade at Wet'suwet'en. Stay tuned. I met Dr. Lavelle Harvard during the Parkland Populism Conference in 2019. I originally interviewed her with my colleague Charlotte Thomason for Terra Informa, a show about environmental news and climate action. The focus of the interview was the intersection between Indigenous activism and climate action, but as Dr. Lavelle Harvard was talking to us, the connection to feminism was clear and I knew I needed to use this interview for Adam and Eve as well. Not only did she explicitly talk about the importance of feminism for indigenous activism, but she did a wonderful job contextualizing our current political and cultural climate through the lenses of feminist indigenous leadership. And as you listen, this talk is extremely important and current, and I think everyone should listen to it. Awesome. Can't wait to hear more. Let's take a listen. So I'm Don Lavelle Harvard. I'm from the Waquamakong First Nation on Manitoulin Island. And I'm currently the director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University, but I have also been president of the Ontario Native Women's Association for at least 15 years now, and did a short term as president for the Native Women's Association of Canada in there somewhere. Amazing. In your talk with the Parkland Institute Conference, um, you spoke a lot about the history of Indigenous women in activism, um, specifically the story about your mother um, Mm -hmm. fighting the federal government to be recognized as somebody with uh, Indian status. Mm -hmm. I just really wanted to ask you about what you see the future of Indigenous activism looking like and specifically like the future of Indigenous activism in relation to climate change. Mm -hmm. So actually I think I mean, there's a couple of conversations going on here in terms of Indigenous activism. You know, we have always been very active in terms of trying to protect our lands from development, um, especially the sort of large-scale resource extraction that has destroyed our territories and our traditional areas, has, you know, made it that the waters are unsafe to drink, is poisoning the plants and the animals and you know that really impacts our ability to survive as a people so we've always been very active in that area one of the things I'm seeing is that as indigenous activists we are finally having a stronger voice there's more respect there's more people in mainstream uh, 
Western society, Canadian society, that are actually looking to Indigenous peoples for leadership. They're, they're supporting a lot of the movements that, you know, previously it was sort of seen as just a bunch of tree huggers siding with the Indigenous peoples. And But now there's more people, because of the awareness of climate change, that are looking to Indigenous traditions, are looking to that knowledge, especially from the elders that are living in the very environmentally sensitive areas, the far north, in the Arctic looking to them for their traditional knowledge because they have so much knowledge about the changes in the environment because they're actually out there living that every day. They're out collecting medicines, they're living off the land, they're harvesting the animals. And so they're seeing the impact of climate change long before anybody else started talking about it. There's different kinds of activism that's necessary in today's kind of society. You know, back in the 1970s, our, our chiefs, when they had the, the white paper that came out from Trudeau, it was a very pound your fist on the table, set up blockades, very angry, rebellious kind of activism at the time um, in the main, in the men's groups at least. You know, with the women, we always had to have a different approach. Um, we always had to, you know, to try to reach people and, and have them not be about statistics, but about showing them the humanity that this, you know, when we talk about 1,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women, it's just so much numbers until you actually start to tell the stories about, you know, the, the young mom that that was that's disappeared, or the mother who had to, her daughter was sent home to her after the daughter had been murdered, um, wrapped in a plastic bag and sent in the hold of a Greyhound bus, because that was how they sent her home, like just so much luggage. And so it's not until you hear the actual stories of these families that you realize the humanity that makes that connection that it's it's more than just numbers. We're not just statistics. And that's a different kind of approach that you have to get people to care about it in order to start wanting to put the effort in to make the change. We're also seeing now, though, that you know, with the, a Trudeau government, that kind of 1970s blockading, angry kind of activism has to work alongside a more contemporary activism, which is recognizing that if mines are in our territory, we can't just stick our heads in the sand and say we oppose it, but if they're already working in our territory, we have to find ways to you know, get on the boards of these organizations, to hold them accountable, to recognize that if they are going to be in our territories, how do we make sure that they do the least damage possible? And that's really tough because that's, you know, we have our elders who are very strong that this shouldn't be in our territory, but as a younger generation, some of our new leadership and activists are having to recognize that they are already in our territory. So what do we do now to, you you know, coming from a, a harm reduction approach sometimes. So there's there's a lot of different approaches that are needed, all working towards the same. And I think the same thing could be said in mainstream society. One of the things I'm really seeing that is making me hopeful is that I was always very appalled by hearing young women say things like, I'm not a feminist, I don't want to be associated with, you know, these sort of ball-busting man-hating. And said so, like, you're really missing the point of feminism, but recognizing that young women now who don't want to associate with feminism have the privilege, the luxury of being able to have those kinds of opinions because of the work of those previous generations of feminists who have made the workplace safer for young women, that they're not subject to the same kind of sexual harassment that our mothers and grandmothers were. They're kind of functioning in a place of security and comfort to a certain extent. That's not to say that it's perfect. I think the Me Too movement has shown that, you know, it's pretty clear it's it's not perfect, but that we have made a lot of progress from our mother's generation when, you know, and, and our grandmother's generations when women weren't even allowed 
to study in universities alongside men when you know they had separate colleges and being able to say I'm not a feminist is something that happens when young people get very comfortable with the place they're in and I think sometimes people like Donald Trump people like all of the you know the 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 far right populists I'm really hoping are going to shock people out of their complacency. Nobody thought Donald Trump would ever get in. He was a joke. He was a racist, sexist, chauvinist pig. And nobody thought that he would ever stand a chance. And then when we all woke up in the morning and, oh God, we live in a world where Donald Trump can be the president of one of the biggest countries, the most powerful positions in the world, makes you realize that we all need to stand up. We all need to recognize that we can't be complacent in expecting that we live in a world that respects human rights, that respects women, that respects equality, that you know encourages minorities and, and diversity and social justice. That's something that has to, you have to keep fighting for. Even though we've achieved it, you have to keep fighting. You can never let down that vigilance. And I really think a lot of people this was a kick in the pants. Like this has, a lot of people have woken up and realized that we have maybe become a little bit slack, a little bit comfortable in our privilege in terms of human rights in Canadian society. And that, you know, this that's something that as Indigenous women, we had never become comfortable because quite frankly, you know, we can see with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry that, you know, Indigenous women have not enjoyed the same human rights protection as other women in Canada. So we've been very aware that we're not in a place where we can be comfortable. We've never been able to let our vigilance down. And I think the rest of society has all of a sudden had a little taste of what it's like when you let your guard down and these things start to creep up and start to get voice. So I was wondering if you could speak on the intersection of this idea of like pipelines and the man camps associated with pipelines mm -hmm. and the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry? Well, this is something that we have really been trying to open everybody's eyes to, trying to shine a light on this, that when we started doing work on human trafficking, and that's something that, that wasn't even a term in people's vocabulary 10 years ago when we started having these conversations, that, that human trafficking was even a thing happening in Canada. And now that we understand, you know, the exploitation of women and children, we understand that this is domestic, these are Canadian and unfortunately disproportionately Indigenous women and children who are being exploited. We know that when these large-scale resource extraction industries come into our territories, you know, the rate of exploitation of Indigenous women and children goes up three hundred percent and I say children specifically I don't say girls because we know that it's also young boys being exploited when these camps come into our territories and that's something that when they're putting through pipelines or when they're putting in these large-scale developments companies have to have harm reduction they have to have mitigation plans for you know the hognose snake or the alvar grasslands but nobody's talking about you know what is your plan to mitigate the harm that's going to happen to the local indigenous peoples, to the local women and children in these territories when these pipelines come through and these camps end up in our territories. You know, those companies are just as responsible for what's happening in their camps as they are for the destruction that these pipelines going through are going to have on the, on the grasslands or the local animals, the, you know, species at risk. This is something that if the government wanted to be truly responsible, not just talking about environmental degradation, but talking about that risk to the local human population in terms of the exploitation that comes along with these camps. And those companies should have to have a plan for how they're going to mitigate that, for how they're going to address that violence and that abuse, that, you know, essentially criminal activity that's going on right within their own businesses, within their own camps. And they're right now, up until now, we've seen that they're largely turning a blind eye. You can't tell me 
that they don't know that when a woman is brought into these camps and to, you know that that's not what's going on I was just wanted to get your thoughts on how climate organizers can effectively support indigenous people in the work that they have been doing and that you have been doing for centuries. One of the things when I was president for the Native Women's Association of Canada, you can imagine the diversity of indigenous voices across this country from coast to coast to coast. But the experience of somebody in the West Bank First Nation is distinctly different from somebody in Attawapiskat. So for me to try to stand up and say as a national leader, I speak on behalf of all indigenous women in Canada is actually absurd because there is no consensus of experience and opinion across Canada that I could legitimately claim to speak on. So our approach and our mandate is actually not to claim to represent all of those Indigenous voices because there's no consensus, there's no unity of, there's no one homogenous voice that you could be speaking from. It's about making space for those voices to speak for themselves. And that's a distinctly different approach. Instead of, you know, like the National Chief saying, I speak on behalf of all Indigenous peoples in Canada, our approach was, we can talk about the concerns, we can talk about the issues, um, and, and recognize that there is a diversity of experience and issues across the country for Indigenous women and Indigenous people in general, but also recognizing that it's about making a space, making a forum so that Indigenous women can speak for themselves. And as non-Indigenous allies, that's really important is what my friend somewhat crassly called taking a step back from the trough once in a while. And and although that brings up some interesting imagery, it. It was an important metaphor for, you know, very often when we're at certain forums, when we're at certain tables, the instinct is you want to bring up Indigenous concerns, but sometimes the more important way is to maybe give up your seat or maybe bring that Indigenous leadership with you. Uh, we just had an example where we went to Geneva, to the United Nations, speaking about climate change, actually, and the role of Indigenous women, not as victims of climate change, which is how we're always positioned as, you know, when the climate change disasters happen, Indigenous women and children around the world are disproportionately worse impacted. Um, and that's typically the representation we get. But talking about, you know, Indigenous women are on the grounds, are strong, are organizing, are in a powerful voice speaking out against climate change and they're a powerful resource and how do we start recognizing that one of the things I wouldn't have been able to go to Geneva and even have that conversation at the UN if it wasn't for the fact that somebody from the Canadian uh, Research Institute for the Advancement of Women they had six seats they were willing to give up three of those seats for our women to join their team to go to Geneva and that is the kind of actual on-the-ground action that makes a difference Instead of those women going to the UN in Geneva and talking about this is the experience that Indigenous women have told us about, they've actually made room in their delegation for Indigenous people to come and speak for ourselves. And that's a hugely different kind of allyship. For some people, that can be really hard because it means giving up something. It meant giving up. You know, three people from their delegation had to stay home in order for us to have, but they were bringing us along with them. and. Having that kind of help, having that kind of support, those women who had power and privilege for generations now, who know how to access those kind of international protocols to get their concerns heard, were able to say, okay, this is how it's done, because it's really complex trying to figure out even how to get to the table and get your voice heard at the UN. But they were able to show us that this is how these processes work, this is how you get here, this is how you, you know, these are some places we can go to secure funding to get you there, because they have that experience and that privilege of knowing all of those things that we didn't have. And we were able to get there and speak on climate change. So that's a really powerful form of allyship is 
bringing Indigenous people along so that they have a seat at the table. Making room at the table is the most powerful thing you can do. You just heard an interview with Don Lavelle Harvard that I did with Charlotte Thomason. Thanks for that, Andy. I think what really stood out to me was the connection between feminism and resource extraction. Dawn did a really amazing job at connecting how resource development leads to harm against Indigenous women, but showing that it doesn't have to be that way. Exactly. It doesn't have to be that way at all. Environmental activism today absolutely needs to be contextualized in harm reduction and mitigation that does need to include Indigenous people, especially women and children. When large-scale resource extraction happens in Indigenous territories, the rate of exploitation of Indigenous women and children goes up by 300%. We need to talk and listen to Indigenous leaders to be able to reconcile economic and resource development to the well-being of Indigenous communities. I think this interview is also extremely relevant when we consider the violence that's occurring right now at Wet'suwet'en. In our next piece, Wen Chan and Randy Monkman talk more about the activism that's taking place in Edmonton right now that is in support of the hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Randy Monkman. I am Anishinaabe from Treaty 1 territory. And for those of you who don't know where that is, that's the Winnipeg area. I have been living in Edmonton for just over a year now. I went to the University of Manitoba. I was doing a um, major in Native Studies and minor in Cultural Anthropology. And before that, I was originally going to school to be an interpreter in American Sign Language, so I graduated the Deaf Studies program. Now I am just doing work with ASL interpreters on how to educate non-Indigenous ASL interpreters on how to be more culturally sensitive while interpreting for Deaf Indigenous folks in and outside of Indigenous spaces. So that's what I do on my spare time, but um, I also am working for a nonprofit in transitional housing with young adults, ages 17 to 25. Wow, all that work sounds awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So in the past few weeks, there were protests happening in Edmonton in support of the blockade in Wet'suwet'en. Could you talk a little bit about what's happening in Wet'suwet'en from your understanding? Yeah, so from my understanding, Canada has signed a document called UNDRIP, and part of that is Indigenous folks should not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories. They also have a say in what is being done to the land and how that will affect Indigenous people. So essentially, this pipeline that is being put through, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline or the CGL, is putting the land at risk. The hereditary chiefs have actually evicted the CGL from from their land. So they evicted the pipeline. They said they don't want it to go through anymore. Essentially, Canada is going against that. The Canadian government is going against their wishes and forcibly removing them from their lands. And what do you see in such actions as the past ones um, in Edmonton this past week doing to support Wet'suwet'en in the greater resistance to the pipeline? I think of land back. And I think that Indigenous people have all along, they've, they've, had, they've had the answer. They knew how to treat the land. They knew how to protect it. When I think about um, hunting, which I have harvested with my mother, she's a hunter and a matriarch. You know, we always give thanks to the land. We've always looked at animals when we hunt them as 
them making themselves an, an offering to us to feed our b- bodies, to nourish us, to fill our stomachs. And we treat the land, the animals, and the waters the same. We want to protect that because this is what gives us life. If we, the mother, mother Earth will take care of us if we take care of if we take care of her. So in terms of indigenous sovereignty, I, I was at the rally yesterday at the BMO downtown and I was watching the people working behind the desk and all I could see was them, all they did was stand there. We weren't, we weren't really harassed. So I think that's what indigenous sovereignty means. Like we, we took up that space when people realize that indigenous people need to be at the forefront, um, what what happened yesterday was um, we all the indigenous people actually stood on the stairs, and we were we were higher up and we were facing down, and all of the allies and non-indigenous folks they kind of stood at the bottom and were looking up at us, and I actually really liked that layout because I find. A lot of the times when when these rallies happen and they happen at the legislature, and my f- my friend um, Eduardo actually brought this t- to my attention, is that it's hard to feel heard when it's at the legislature and say only a hundred people show up and it's this big, huge building and it makes us feel really small. It was really actually really great being in this bank, being higher up and being able to having people listen to us and hear our cries um, and sing our songs and dance our round dances. We really tie ceremony into these rallies. And I think like that's all a part of indigenous sovereignty too. Like people get excited to, to join us and, and you see them dancing, you see them learning our songs. And I really feel this this indigenous sovereignty on the rise. You see the photos. I don't know if you if you saw what was happening in BC, but there was the fountain in the grounds that they all met and they put red dye in it <laughs> to symbolize like Canada has blood on their hands. And like even when you see the hashtags, like like the world is watching you or all eyes on Wet'suwet'en. I think, and even just like Winnipeg, where I'm from, I was reading up, and I think about like 700, 700 people showed up, and they actually blocked three major intersections, and they had round dances in the middle. So you really do see the sovereignty happening, and people really fighting for that, and people showing up, allies. It's just incredible. <laughs> And I'm so happy to be a part of this. (laughs) Um, I'm so happy to know the truth. I remember when the TRC first came out and my mom was in university. She went to university at a really uh, older age and she started learning about residential schools. She would take me to these talks with the TRC commissioners and Marie Sinclair. And I had no idea, even just sitting in those talks, I had no idea what was going on. It was going way over my head. I didn't grow up with my father. He actually made a decision not to be there. But it wasn't until I got older that I realized he went to residential school. His parents went to residential school. And learning all this and realizing how close um, impacts of residential school was to me, like to the point where my father couldn't, felt like he couldn't take care of me. He He's good now. We actually have a relationship. And 
he used to talk to me a lot about these issues. And I don't like calling them Indigenous issues. They're Canadian issues. It shouldn't be our problem. But I couldn't understand him when we would talk about these things. And now my relationship with my father has grown significantly just because these are the issues that we can talk about. This is what we relate. This is when I say to him, Dad, I need ceremony. And he's like, can can you get connected with anybody in the city? Um, why don't you try like a local friendship center, you know? And I'm like, no, Dad, it's okay. I, I have um, a lot of friends um, within the Indigenous community that can connect me to those. But ceremony and this fight for Indigenous sovereignty has really brought me and my father closer together as well, um, which has been really great. And, you know, just really closer to my culture. I have been feeling really overwhelmed lately and I didn't really know where else to turn. I was feeling really hopeless, really lost. Sometimes it, it even feels like I'm talking to a brick wall when I'm sharing information on what's going on in so-called Canada. And I remember this word, ceremony, it just kept coming up in my head. And I attended my first sweat ceremony in five years a couple weeks ago and I remember sitting in this sweat and the elder that was leading it actually said a lot of things that I was thinking about before I went there so I I knew I was there at the right time I knew I was there for a reason when I look at these videos of what's going on at at the, the different checkpoints. Frida Hassan or Hewson, that, that is one of the matriarchs that was arrested. They were actually doing a ceremony at the time of being arrested um, to honor, the ceremony was to honor missing and murdered indigenous women. And you see the videos and you hear them crying out to our ancestors and going back to our roots and calling out to our ancestors and speaking in our language and using this ceremony as as healing and as protection in terms of that ceremony to honor um, missing murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit i saw this photo that was taken by amber bracken and it's it was taken on february 10th 2020 and it shows a police officer violating ceremonial protocols and it shows him walking away holding this drum (laughs) and when I look at this it just looks so wrong to see these these men going into these camps and forcibly removing these peaceful land defenders that are doing just one thing defending the land That's all it is. And carrying that drum that that means so, so, so much to my people's culture and ceremony, it's just heartbreaking to see that. Actually going back to the um, Wet'suwet'en, Sequetmik territory and Gidiminton, and even the rallies and protests that I've been to, is that everybody is unarmed but we have these troops showing up completely armed with assault rifles, police dogs, but we're all peaceful and we have one thing but love in our hearts and it's for the land. And this doesn't just 
it's not just for our generations, it's for the generations ahead of us too. And one thing, that's one thing that um, Indigenous people have always emphasized, even with the signing of the treaties. We have this seven generational thinking where we're always thinking ahead of the future generations. And there is no need for, for the violence that the Canadian government and the RCMP are inflicting on Indigenous people. We're trying to do this as peacefully as, <laughs> as we can. So keep that in mind when you're watching the videos and you see the photos is we're unarmed. There's a Udestoten, um camp legal fund that I encourage people to donate to. So it's the actionnetwork.org slash fundraising slash Unistoten 2020 legal fund. Thank you so much, Randy, for coming onto the show. Miigwech, thank you for having me. You just heard a conversation between Randy Monkman and Wen Chan about activism and land defense that's currently taking place in Edmonton and Wet'suwet'en. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist radio program. We produce this week's show in the studios of CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on Treaty 6 territory. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like here in practice for yourself. We also encourage you to look into the violence that's taking place in Wet'suwet'en right now and check out the activist's guide to supporting those there. You can find the supporter toolkit on unistoten.camp. That's U-N-I-S-T-O-T-E-N dot camp, C-A-N. MP. In this toolkit, in the Solidary Fundraiser Protocols, one idea includes not inserting your own or your group's narrative in the Wet'suwet'en story and gaining consent first if you have an idea for a fundraiser. Check out the website for even more ideas. Thank you very much today to Don Lavelle Harvard, the folks at Terra Informa for allowing us to use this piece, and Wen Chan and Randy Mockman for their conversation. Thank you very much for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andy Silva, Autumn Mornchuk, and Wen Chan. Have, Have an, an adamant, adamant evening! evening.